minister God's word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Our text for consideration this morning will be Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 through 17. Now that I've had you turn to Ephesians, I want to first read to you from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it From his presence the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he all, and also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now I read that passage for you this morning because as we all are aware, this is how the story ends. There will be this time when the final judgment comes and God will... Come down and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and pain and sin and death and mourning will be no more. But that is not today. This is the day of our eternal rest that we look forward to. 
But today, we fight. I've titled this morning's message these precise words, Today We Fight, as we consider the armor of God. And what we have here in Ephesians chapter 6 is a call to arms from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 through 17, the words of the Apostle, he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, It was June 6, 1944. There had been a streak of bad weather in and around the in and around Great Britain. On this particular morning, thick dark clouds hung in the sky. The winds were gusting over 25 miles an hour across the English Channel. There was a solemnness on this day. Almost a hush about it. On this early morn, a myriad of allied soldiers were about to make history in the execution of Operation Neptune, or as we know it, D-Day. A naval fleet comprised of over 6,000 vessels made its way to the beaches of Normandy. In an effort to turn back the Nazi Blitzkrieg and make an advancement on the European continent, the mission was to storm the beaches. We know the operation was a great success, but not without great cost. Soldiers were packed into these transport vessels, and as they landed on the beaches, they would drop the door of the vessel, and they were met with machine gun fire from the Axis foes. The beaches were lined with mines and barbed wire. Survival was not a guarantee, nor was it it even a high probability. Soldiers were literally using the bodies of fallen soldiers to help block from oncoming bullet fire. Some transport ships ran aground on sand barges, some 50, 75, 100 feet from shore. And these soldiers would get off their transport vessels and they would wade through the waters to face the oncoming fire from the enemy. Success for this mission was dependent upon courage, resolve, commitment, and a refusal to give up, to give in, to back down, no matter the circumstances nor the opposition. And as I think about this historic day, the question that comes to my mind, what would compel such a person to run headfirst into that conflict? And the only conclusion that I can come to grips with is that they were fighting for something greater than themselves. There was a sense of duty about this generation. They were all in on the cause. They knew that they had been called upon in that very hour, to resist and push back against the evil of their day. Brothers and sisters, they fought, they bled, they died for freedom on earth. A most noble and virtuous cause. And we too have been called to fight. We've been called to fight for something greater than ourselves. For the most noble and virtuous cause on this earth. We have been called to fight for the advancement of God's kingdom, So to be a Christian is to be enlisted in the army of God. So today we fight. And this is something that I personally am passionate about. For far far too many of us live in defeat. We neglect the armor of God. We have a passive Christianity. And we run from conflict. 
I want to be among those that are running into the battle, proclaiming Jesus is king. We are called to fight. We are called to labor for the kingdom of God. And so what we have here in Ephesians chapter 6, a very familiar text, one that we have probably heard many sermons on, is Paul's description of the armor that is supplied by God to the Christian. To give a bit of context here, as we're jumping right in the middle of his thought, verses 10 through 13, Paul is almost bringing the, the summary of Ephesians together. The whole of Ephesians, as he's gone through from chapter 1, 2, 3, the, 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 the sovereignty of God in, in love predestining a people to himself, to chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive. Later in chapter 2, how he's made one people in Christ, to taking the ethnic divides and bringing us together as one people. Chapter 3, the spiritual blessings that we have. Chapter 4, the the, the the, the one confession, the one faith, one church, one baptism, to then the gifts that Christ has given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to the ethical and the outworking of our faith as we would live practical holiness, then our rules for relationships in the household codes. And he brings it all together in chapter 6 here that we are to fight, we are to labor, we are to strive in this way. At the beginning of verses 10 through 13, Paul gives him the charge to be strong. To be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This is his preparing of the people of the Ephesians for battle. To be strong and to take up the armor of God. The challenge is clear. You would see here in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wage war against Satan's schemes and Satan's forces. And the charge before us is to stand firm. And so, to provide even just one heading for this morning, let us consider the armor applied. The armor of God applied to us as believers. You see here in verse 14, his first two words. Stand therefore. The apostle has repeated himself numerous times here. You would look back in verse 10. He would tell, verse 11, he would tell him to stand against. Verse 13, with, that you might be able to withstand. Again in verse 13, to stand firm. And again he would say it one more time as though he hasn't been clear enough. Stand Therefore, what he means here is this be upright, be alert, be ready, be willing, be able to do what? Having fastened on the belt of truth. Paul is taking vivid word pictures here and making spiritual application for the Christian soldier. Now we would know later on in this section here that Paul is actually chained to a Roman soldier. This single chain. So there's no doubt he's observing these soldiers each and every day as he's in this Roman prison in their full armor. So when he talks about the belt of truth, Paul is not describing simply putting a belt on your pants so to keep your trousers up. Quite literally, he is saying, soldier, gird up your loins. This is terminology that we don't really use in the 21st century. Soldiers would wear this long, flowing tunic. And so what they would do, if they were off-duty, the tunic would be down. They, would be, they, were, they weren't alert, they weren't ready, they were off-duty. They would let their belt out and their tunic would drape down. 
But the soldier on duty would have his loins girded up. The tunic would be pulled up, tied around the waist to about thigh height, and with a uh, a girdle or a belt to hold it tight there. This signified preparedness on the part of the soldier. The soldier is more agile now, that he would not trip over his long flowing tunic. There would no, no need to worry about that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we would read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, or quite literally, Peter would say, or the girding up of your loins of your mind. And Paul ties this, tr- this action to truth. So to fasten on the belt of truth is the first action that must be taken for the Christian soldier in applying the armor. You would notice here as we will go through these, each one of them is progressively and one builds upon another. Paul pulls this imagery, no doubt, from Isaiah 11.5 concerning the servant of Jehovah, where, he, where we would read that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The first and foundational step is to be grounded in truth, brothers and sisters. We are people of truth. We follow the one who made the most radical claim to be the truth, the definite article. He is the truth, the way, the truth, the life. He is not a way, a truth, or a life. And so what this means for us here as we think about even this this tying up and the girding of our loins to be ready This means from the very start of the battle, the very start of the fight, we must be rooted and grounded in truth. We must live lives of truthfulness. We reject error. We reject falsehood. We stand for what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. There's no place in the Christian life for for lying or being double-minded in any way. We are fastened with truth. And so as this is the first step that we take in applying the armor of God, truth is to be fastened around us in that we are prepared. But moving on there, he would tell the Ephesians after they have fastened on the belt of truth, the first step is to to, to, to raise the tunic, to tie it off, to be ready, to be prepared. The next thing we would be doing is to have having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, Paul certainly has in mind here the armor of Yahweh. Isaiah 59:17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now the Roman soldier's breastplate, as we are probably all aware, would cover from about neck high down to the thighs. It served to protect all the vital organs, especially the heart. It is often made of metal, most likely bronze. Maybe a modern example of this breastplate, if we were to talk about it in uh, 21st century terms, would be to wear your bulletproof vest. Commonly, the breastplate would also have a back piece. Paul makes no mention of it here. I believe implied is that as a Christian, you are not to turn around. To back down in the fight, there is no retreat, there is no surrender. Paul calls this the breastplate of righteousness. This is something, something we could take away from this, that we are to guard our hearts. We are to guard our hearts by being one of uprightness and integrity of character. In Matthew 
Chapter 5, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ would say that you are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works, your breastplate of righteousness. And not look at you and say, wow, you're a really good person. No, that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christian, as we are to put on a breastplate of righteousness, we are to protect our hearts from lusts, idolatry. We are to commit ourselves to righteousness, active obedience, aggressive holiness, knowing that the righteousness of Jesus that has been given to us has given us right standing before God. This righteousness that we talk about, this breastplate of righteousness, is not a righteousness unto salvation, but it is because of our salvation. And so we are to wear this breastplate of uprightness and righteousness. Continuing along in verse 15, we would read from the apostle, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Nahum 1.15 Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. It is the gospel according to Nahum. Notice how the belt and the breastplate lead to the shoes. The, the, the loins have been girded up. The breastplate has been placed on. Now it's time to fasten the shoes. This would be the order of outfitting, but also consider how truthfulness and righteousness lead to a readiness to bring the, go the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. If you are not fastened in truth and committed to righteous living, your testimony is compromised, your readiness is hindered. Think about it. If we're not grounding ourselves in truth, we're not actively pursuing holiness as we are called to do, how, quick are we, how quickly are we really ready to go out and share the gospel? You might have thoughts, well, I'm just living like a hypocrite. This is why we must constantly be evaluating ourselves, but also committing ourselves to truth, practical holiness in our lives. Paul would say here, shoes for your feet. Oftentimes I think when we, when we think about first century, the sandals that they wore, he has no, Paul, does, Paul does not have an idea of Birkenstocks in his mind here when he's talking about the sandals or the shoes. Quite literally, if he has the Roman footwear in mind, they were military boots that he has. Josephus would describe them as shoes thickly studded with sharp nails. Other commentators would say that on these shoes, there would be up to two-inch spikes on them. It is interesting, both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar saw great military success because of their soldiers' footwear. They were able to traverse great distances and be able to outflank and outmaneuver their enemy because of these shoes that they, were, that they were able to wear. And Paul says, be ready with these shoes as to bring the gospel of peace. 
oh, it was a couple months ago, um, me and my, my youngest son, at the time was four years old, we decided to go up north and we were going to uh, hike some mountains, or a mountain. Um, bringing a four-year-old up a mountain is quite a, uh, quite a feat. He did well. But as we were going up this mountain, we started to get higher and higher in the elevation. And this is, I don't know, middle of April. There's no snow down here. Well, as we got higher and higher, we started to come across a little bit of snow, a little bit of ice. And I thought, well, this would not be a good situation if you were not prepared. But we were prepared. We stopped. We took off our bags. We opened up our bags. And we had our micro spikes. We had the spikes that were needed. So we would sit there and putting the little spikes on the four-year-old. It was kind of cute. And then as him and I, and as we put our spikes on, we were able to traverse that terrain without any worries, without any worries of the, 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 the conditions. We were not slowed. We saw people that were struggling along the way. We were ready with these spikes, secured to our feet. We trusted in our equipment. We were ready. And I think here when the Apostle Paul talks about having as shoes for your feet, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, we must be ready. We must be ready. Let me ask you, Christian, are you ready to bring the gospel of peace? Are you ready to cover any ground, traverse whatever terrain to bring the good news that in Christ there is peace? Romans 10:15 And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news Oh may it be said of us that we are soldiers with beautiful feet I want worn out shoes that have gone the distance that have traversed the highways and the byways proclaiming the prince of peace that he is king Christian, let me ask you, are your boots worn? Are they broken in? Are they shiny new? We are called to fight, not against flesh and blood, but we are to labor for the kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel, not to cloister in the comfort of church and the Christian community, but to go, to bring the good news, to proclaim peace, the year of the Lord's favor. We also understand in going and being faithful, God is sovereign over the end. God is also sovereign over the means. And Jesus says, go. And the apostle says, put on the readiness. The thickly studded military boots with sharp nails a few inches long also allowed the soldiers to stand their ground. We stand on the promises of the gospel. We stand firm on the truth that Jesus died for sinners and has made peace through the blood of his cross. We stand firm that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And we share this gospel without distinction. May we be ready with the gospel of peace the gospel on my mind, the gospel on my heart, the gospel on my tongue. Notice here the next piece of equipment that the apostle would describe. 
to the readiness given by the gospel of peace, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The soldier's shield for the Roman was about, uh, the Roman soldier was about four feet in length, about two and a half feet in width. It wasn't a square shield, it was an oblong shield made of wood covered in leather and hide and usually strapped with iron or some form of metal. And when the soldiers would line up in formation, they would form a shield wall. This is very important. And this shield that Paul describes is that of faith, the shield of faith. A crouching soldier with that shield size, if he was crouching behind his shield, he would be fully protected. There's no need to parse the meaning of faith here. It is the exercise of faith and the object of our faith where we find protection. Faith is the protector against all the flaming darts of the evil one. The leather or skins that covered the shield were oftentimes soaked in water so that when the flaming darts of the enemy would hit the shield, they would be extinguished. And so they were ready, they were prepared, the soldiers were prepared ahead of time. We must understand that faith not only protects against flaming darts, but it also renders the assault ineffective. I believe every good sermon should make some reference to Pilgrim's Progress. And so here we go. Consider Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. With his battle with Apollyon, as he's got his armor and he is ready. Just beyond the palace, beautiful, lies the Valley of Humiliation. Christian has scarcely entered it when he sees coming towards him a foul fiend named Apollyon. A hideous monster with scales like a fish, wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, fire and smoke pour out of a hole in his belly. The monster asks Christian, whence come you and whither are you bound? Or in modern English, where are you coming from and where are you going? When Christian replies that he is coming from the city of destruction and bound for the city of Zion, Apollyon points out that he is the prince and god of the city of destruction and all the surrounding territory, that Christian is therefore one of his subjects and owes him obedience, that he should obey his command and turn around and go home. Christian refuses. Announcing his intention in continuing in the king's highway and the way of holiness, with that, Apollyon blocks the path and lets fly at Christian with a flaming dart, which Christian deflects with his shield. But then comes a shower of flaming darts. According to Bunyan, they were thick as hail, inflicting many wounds. Christian's sword is useless to him, for Apollyon stays out of reach as he moves around, hurling his darts. As the battle rages on, and they go back and forth, and Christian does inflict, uh, uh, receive some wounds, we know how the story goes. Christian does prevail. As Apollyon gets closer... A Christian is able to grab his sword and thrust it into Apollyon. And I think about these flaming darts that we would see vividly in Bunyan and also in what Paul speaks about here. He refers to them in verse 16, that you might be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let me ask you, what are these darts? Practically speaking, what are these darts that... 
Paul talks about? Well, you would just go back in your text and you could look and see that he talks about the schemes of the devil. Consider Job as he was assaulted with flaming darts. Practically, what are these darts? Romans 8.35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. According to one commentator, we'd say these darts are flaming missiles brought about by doubt, others' lust, greed, vanity, envy. Maybe you've had thoughts like, how could God love me? Or how could God love you? Look at what you just did. Or maybe you can't really be sure that you are a Christian. Look how much you sin. Look at how put together everybody else's life is. You are worthless. You don't matter. Just give up. Or maybe another thought that might come is find your identity in what you do. No, that's a struggle for many men. Another flaming dart might be something like this. You can serve Christ better once you make more money and can retire comfortably. Start tomorrow, not today. Do you really think God cares about you? There's so many other important people in this world. Or how about an age-old flaming dart? Take a bite. It'll make you feel good. These are all flaming darts. And what must we do? We must fight by faith. Faith is like a muscle. The more it is exercised, the stronger it becomes. And Christian, you might be struggling even here this morning with doubt or envy or jealousy or whatever it might be. Do not dwell on the darts, but look outward and look upward to your God. We stand on the promises. We rely on the word. We push back by faith. How do I know that God loves me? Not because I look inward, but because I look outward. I look upward and I look to what he has done. The death of Christ demonstrates the love of God. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great savior. Remind yourself of the gospel, Christian. He who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Let me exhort you to stand together in faith against the common foe. And to not allow a dart to penetrate the ranks. While you might be able to protect yourself with a shield, a church together forms a shield wall. Shield down man down. You might know of a brother or sister even now this morning that is struggling in faith. You might be that brother or sister this morning struggling in faith. It might have taken everything you had to get up this morning and just make it to the gathering of God's people. I want to encourage you. Fight. Preach the gospel to yourself. You are a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. Let me encourage you, talk to somebody. It is okay to say that I am not well, that I am struggling, that my shield has been down. I feel weak. I've been afflicted by the darts. I need help. I'm struggling with doubts. The darts have assaulted me. 
It is better to be honest with yourself and to others than to pretend like you're okay. Because that's what church people do. A means of strengthening the faith is being in the covenant community of God's people, the local church. The isolated warrior stands no chance. You are stronger together. Today we fight. And we are to fight together as the people of God. Notice here, verse 17, Paul would say, and take the helmet of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he would write a helmet, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I don't believe the soldier's helmet needs much description. It was a leather helmet plated with brass or other metals. We know how foolish it would be to go into war without a helmet. And he says, take the helmet of salvation, literally receive it with eagerness and assurance. Whereas faith protects us from the onslaught of the darts of the evil one, the assurance of salvation keeps our minds right in the battle. As we wage war in this world against sin, self, and Satan, we are to guard our minds with the assurance of God's salvation promised to us. And when we think about salvation, we must think of salvation as past, present, and future. God has saved us in regeneration. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But we must also understand that He is saving us. This is in our sanctification. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And we must recognize that He will save us in final glorification. We read that at the very beginning. 1 Peter 1.5, you who are being protected, oh, I love this, you are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation assures us that the battle belongs to the Lord. And the outcome is determined. Victory has been achieved. Scottish Presbyterian commentator John Eady wrote, It is the assurance of being interested in this salvation that guards the head. He who knows that he is safe, who feels that he is pardoned and sanctified, possesses this helmet. So to make application since I have been saved by God and I am being saved, I will fight. I will fight for personal holiness. I will fight for the advancement of the gospel. Since I will one day be saved, I will continue in this fight until that day. Christian soldiers never retire from battle because their enemy never gives up. And finally here, consider the sword of the Spirit. You would say the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is clearly the most offensive weapon in the arsenal. It is not the lightweight spear of the Roman hoplite that Paul has in mind here, nor is it the large two-handed broadsword. But it is the short, two-edged, cut-and-thrust sword, the sword that the gladiators 
and heavily armored soldiers would use. It is a champion sword that he has in mind here for its amazing versatility, usefulness, and power. It is a weapon to be used in close combat, hand-to-hand combat. And Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Quite literally, it is the gospel of God. 1 Peter 1.25, Peter would say, But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. You think about the first time that the gospel is ever proclaimed in all of Scripture. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What I find so interesting about that proto-evangel is that it's not an invitation. It's a declaration of victory. And the first time the gospel is ever mentioned in the Bible, it is that the, 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 the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent while he bruises the heel of the, of the, the woman's seed. And notice if we were to look at that passage, it is God, before even handing out the curse, looking to the serpent and proclaiming victory over him. It is God declaring the gospel to Satan as a sure victory. And this is the word of God. And this is our confidence. The gospel is a declaration of the victory of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.12, a very familiar verse, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. When we read that the word of God, it is the word of Christ. In Revelation 1.16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is called the sword of the spirit because it is given by the spirit through inspiration and applied to the heart. Christian soldiers, we are called to wield the sword. We gain victory through the word of God, convicting and changing hearts, as well as conforming us to the image of Christ. Consider after Jesus' baptism, he goes off into the wilderness. What was the weapon that he brought along with him? He brought the sword with him. It is written, It is written, it is written to overcome the temptations of the evil one. The sword destroys the schemes of the devil. So let me ask you, Christian, how do you approach your Bible? Wield the sword. Commit yourselves to Scripture memorization. Psalm 119.11 I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Think about this. What soldier intentionally walking, walking into battle would intentionally not bring their sword? A not very bright one, I would say. Oh, but how many of church glowers neglect to invest themselves in the Word of God? Sunday to Sunday is Bible intake. Spurgeon said, There's dust enough on some of the Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. I would encourage you, study the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Apply the Word of God. Remember that you are a soldier. You are the warrior, but the Word is the weapon. Let the sword do its job. The Word of God repels the evil one, brings life to the dead. 
changes the hearts of the lost, shows the beauty of Christ and the condition of sinful humanity. We have everything in the book. The sword is sufficient. We need not add to it. We don't need to supplement, but we need to preach, pray, and present the word with conviction, with compassion, and with charity. And Christian, this is the armor of God applied. So let me ask you just a few questions as we would close even now this morning. Are you ready for battle? Are you mindful of the war that is going on all around us? We can fall into complacency because we get into just the routine and we're going through life and we start to coast and we start to let our guard down. Are you fastened in the truth? Are you practicing righteousness, active obedience to protect your heart? Are you ready and are you going with the gospel of peace? We, all we have to do is look out. We just turn the news on for five minutes and then turn it off. You can see there's chaos everywhere. And now, especially with what just happened this, on, on, on Friday, there's all this turmoil. There's this rioting and going on. We have peace. We have the message of peace. We have the only means of peace. We can truly and honestly say peace, peace, and there is peace through Jesus Christ. Are you going with that gospel of peace? Don't stay cloistered. Go. Are you withstanding the attacks by faith? Don't live in isolation. Be connected with your covenant community, your people. And does the assurance of God's salvation guard your mind and strengthen you for the battle at hand? Are you wielding the sword? Are you committing yourself to Bible intake, to knowing the word of God? Are you trusting in the word of God to do the work of God according to the perfect plan of God? Christian, we are called to fight today. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize we are so weak We are frail. And we are in desperate need of your grace and your mercy every day. We are dependent upon you for the armor and the strength that you supply. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us what we need in this life. All things that pertain to life and godliness. So Father, would you strengthen us for the weary Christian even among us this morning that they would be strengthened to stand firm, to lean into the strength that you supply, to find their hope and their satisfaction, their joy and their courage in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for all that you have supplied us, the full panoply, Lord, leaving no part out. You have covered us head to toe. May we not neglect the armor that you have supplied us with to our own detriment. And Lord, may we not grow overconfident in this life, but humbly dependent upon you each and every day. Strengthen us. May we be resolved to proclaim Christ is King. And we pray this in his name. Amen.